This episode of In Good Company is brought to you by Oh My Gum, a plastic-free chewing gum that really is chewing gum as it should be. Plastic-free, I hear you say? Yes, plastic-free. You probably didn't know this, but regular chewing gum is actually made from plastic. The same plastic that's used to make tyres and glue and all sorts of other things that you definitely wouldn't want to put in your mouth. Oh My Gum, on the other hand, is an eco-friendly alternative to mainstream chewing gum because it's made with 100% plant-based and biodegradable ingredients. It's also sugar-free, vegan-friendly, and available in two really tasty natural flavours, mint and cinnamon. Plus, the packaging is so chic and super stylish, it looks like the sort of thing you actually want to carry around in your handbag. And it's also spill-proof and fully recyclable. If you want to stop chewing on plastic, and really, don't we all, Make the switch now to Oh My Gum and head to www.ohmygum.com. That's www.ohmygum.com. You can also follow them on Instagram at o.my.gum. Thank you very much to Oh My Gum. Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Otega Uagba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. On today's episode, I'm talking to the journalist Shirin Kahlo, who is a features writer for The Guardian, Observer, British Vogue, Wired UK, Vice, GQ, and many other publications. Prior to going freelance a few years ago, Shirin was an editor at Vice UK, where she launched their award-winning anti-stalking campaign, Unfollow Me, and before that, worked as a staff writer at Dazed. She authors The Guardian's flagship long-form series on COVID-19 deaths, Lost to the Virus, which tells the stories of the individuals who died of COVID-19 in the UK, and the structural and systemic factors that contributed to their deaths. Before becoming a journalist in her late 20s, Shirin actually worked as a lobbyist at a variety of public affairs and communications firms, and we talk a little bit about that as well in this episode. I've always really enjoyed Shirin's journalism, and never more so than during 2020, when I think she produced some of the most notable features of the year. We actually recorded this episode before the tragic case of Sarah Everard, who, as you probably know, was abducted and murdered back in March, and whose death sparked a series of protests and heated discussions on the subject of police conduct, male violence and women's safety, or lack thereof. I mention that because Shirin wrote some incredibly hard-hitting pieces in response to Sarah's death, but given the timing, we unfortunately didn't get to discuss them on the show. But I have included one of those pieces in the show notes for this episode, and would strongly recommend you read it. It was a real honour to have Shirin on the show. I consider her one of the best journalists the UK has, so getting an insight into how she approaches her work and her worldview more generally was a real pleasure. Here she is. Very briefly, I want to touch on your career before you got into journalism, because my understanding is that you worked in lobbying, sort of corporate lobbying. And I was wondering whether you could actually just explain for people listening what that involves and just demystify a little bit quickly, because I think a lot of people maybe don't really know that that happens or realise that it plays such a big role in politics. So could you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, corporate lobbying was something that I fell into after leaving university. And lots of people who work in corporate lobbying 
either worked in politics before or they plan to go back into politics. Corporate lobbying firms will have incredibly close ties to either current or former governments or opposition parties. And at its most fundamental level, corporate lobbying or public affairs, which is what it tends to be called in the UK, is about trying to understand government policy decisions and influence them. Some of my clients, for example, were like McDonald's or Google. Those companies will have teams inside those organisations that will want to know what's going on in Westminster and know what sort of policies might be coming down the line and try and influence what happens to those policies by sort of building better relationships with people in government or people in opposition parties who might one day be in government. It sounds pretty like nefarious, but a lot of it is really, really boring. It's like, you know, like reading Hansard to see what's going on in Parliament, like arranging meetings with MPs. Most of the time, it's not incredibly interesting or even particularly dirty work. It's, you know, information that's publicly accessible and you're trying to help your client understand what the regulatory environment might be like for them in the future. That bit I understand, but I'm curious as to because I know my understanding of lobbying is probably influenced slightly by like, I don't know, House of Cards or something like that. But I'm intrigued as to how corporations then go on to try and influence government decisions. Because, okay, when I was working in advertising, I had like a booze client and they were all very jumpy about the fact that they were worried that the government was going to outlaw alcohol advertising full stop in the same way that they did with cigarettes. And that was a big thing for us. And I obviously wasn't involved in the lobbying side of things, but I'm curious as to like, what are the mechanics that companies then employ to try and influence things? Because that is where it gets a bit murky, you know? Oh, yeah, totally. And I mean, my old firm actually was on the front cover of the Sunday Times about six months ago because they had advance notice of the second lockdown before the UK knew about the second lockdown. So there's like really, yeah, really close ties often in the inner rings of Downing Street between these companies and senior policymakers. I mean, so a lot of what they do is emphasising the positives and downplaying the negatives when trying to sort of influence policymakers. So for example, say you're like a major fast food chain and you really, really, really don't want the government to introduce a sugar tax or further limit fast food advertising to children, although it's already highly restricted. What you do is you sort of big up the positive. So you're like, oh, well, look how many people we employ and look how many people we give apprenticeships to and look at how many people we, you know, how many farmers we support in our supply chain in the UK and look how many jobs we create. And then you sort of identify members of parliament who have seats where perhaps there's a lot of farmers in those seats and then you start to lobby those members of parliament and say hey do you know how many people in our supply chain live in your constituency so how do you feel about this piece of legislation that's been proposed and might negatively impact those people it's really interesting a lot of the work is incredibly boring some of it is really quite immoral did you ever feel ethically convicted by what you were doing when you were doing it Yes, definitely. I never did anything that I would sort of characterise as ethically dubious because honestly, I was just a grunt. I wasn't very senior. (laughs) I wasn't interacting with senior policymakers or influencing policy in any way whatsoever. Most of my time I was watching Parliament and transcribing things that I'd read about in Hansard. But I felt that what I was doing was not contributing to a better or more equal society. And I used to have these really incredibly dark thoughts where I would 
I'd be in meetings at work and I'd think to myself, if a bomb dropped in this building, there would be no net loss to society. And oh, my God. <laughs> I know. Not that my <laughs> colleagues are terrible people or anything like that. Like, I'm still friends with loads of them and they're mm. good people. But I just used to think that the work that we were doing was meaningless and it didn't mean anything. And a lot of it was just work for the sake of work. Like, you know, when you have clients and you work in a corporate job, a lot of the work you do is just justifying your retainer to your clients, which means just pointless work for the sake of it. And I really hated that, like just meetings after meetings after meetings. I mean, I, I worked in advertising before I moved into journalism. So I think I had a similar feeling of pointlessness at times of what I do, which is, yeah, I mean, anyway, we'll get into that in a second. But I, I want to understand, so when and why did you decide to leave lobbying and move into journalism? I was, I would say a huge underachiever in my 20s and I don't believe that I don't believe no (laughs) really I really was honestly truly I left university and I was totally aimless I had no idea what I wanted to do in my life I kind of fell into lobbying public affairs I hated it and I was bad at it to be honest with you like I (laughs) (laughs) and I really think it's important to say that because especially in journalism it's like a hyper ambitious competitive field people come up to me or I mean not in the real world but like online and they're like oh I'm 24 and it hasn't happened for me yet and I'm like you know everyone's incredibly ambitious and really hungry and I really feel like I want to be honest about my story because I was 26 and really had no idea what I was doing in my life and no idea how to get into a career that I liked and I was really quite miserable and just sort of living for the weekends and I kind of basically just woke up one morning and was like I cannot do this anymore like I have to just quit this job I'm so unhappy I'm really bad at it they're almost certainly going to fire me soon because it's clear that I've got zero interest in what I'm doing (laughs) I was really a terrible employee and I'd always sort of done tiny bits of freelance writing on the side while I worked there but very anonymously using a pseudonym because I didn't want my bosses to find out and fire me basically so I dabbled in freelance writing and I always thought, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll just build up my freelance writing on the side and then I'll be able to quit my corporate job and, you know, go fully freelance. And then I realised you can't really do two things well, or at least I couldn't. So I basically hit 26 and in the space of a month, I broke out with my long term partner. I quit my job to go like to try and be a full time writer, journalist. And oh, I also got a nose piercing, which like less heard about that, the better. <laughs> That was very funny. I feel like I had like a very similar episode when I was, I was 25. So I was working advertising and I just had this like quarter life crisis slash epiphany where I had known for years that that wasn't what I wanted to be doing and that I wanted to move into journalism and writing. Similarly, I like quit my job, moved back home with my parents, like just kind of not blew up my life, but yeah, made a lot of changes in a very short period of time. And if I'm being honest, that period of time was like hell. Um, for me, it was really, really difficult. One of the questions I get asked most back when I was running Women Who and more just generally is from people who are kind of feeling stuck in one career and wanting to pursue another. And I'm curious as to what for you was the kind of like the emotional and like the kind of thought process like of leaving behind a profession you didn't like to pursue something you wanted to do but it was also quite risky I mean breaking into journalism is harder and harder it's very poorly paid like how did you know it was time to leave what conversations were you having with yourself 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you can relate to this as well. I think we probably have quite similar stories in terms of just being incredibly unhappy in quite corporate jobs. I honestly just realised that I was just miserable. Like I was just so miserable. I was just such a bad version of myself. Like I really, really was. And I could just see how the rest of my life was going to go and it was going to go with me being basically not raided at my job working at like probably a not raided firm and being in a not raided relationship and being really quite unhappy and I think when you're really unhappy and unfulfilled you don't always admit that to yourself I was kind of in denial about it and then it would just come out in these random moments where I'd be at a party and someone would ask me what I'll do and I'll start crying (laughs) oh god oh my god I've literally been there I mean I didn't actually start crying but it was getting to the point where I remember specifically I was at a party and like it got to the point where people asked me what I did and I didn't want to tell them and yeah. I think that was the point at which I was like, okay, well, this is an issue. Like, definitely when I started working advertising, I was like, oh my God, it's just like Mad Men. And I'd like love talking about it at parties. But by the end, I would just like mumble something and then change the subject, which I think is quite a big sign. Yeah, completely. And I think just realising that I was so incredibly unhappy and so unfulfilled. And then, I mean, it was terrifying, to be honest with you. I had this spreadsheet of my contacts in journalism, which is basically like the three editors that I'd written for. <laughs> and I pretty much just emailed them all, hope that someone would respond to me and then kind of just like sat there and panicked solidly for about six weeks and just like just thinking like, what am I going to do? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to live? It was a really, really horrible, like really, really hard time. But then when I managed to get a foot in the door, because I was incredibly fortunate and I managed to get an internship advice purely because I'd written for them a few times and the timing was right and I was super, super, super lucky. But then when I got that foot in the door, actually, I hate this word, but like it felt really right. Like I got in there and I was like, wow, I actually really care about this and I really want to do a good job at this internship. And I'd never felt that before in a professional setting. I'd never felt like I particularly cared about the work that I was doing. So I was happy to stay there till 10 p.m. working on freelance articles and making my pieces as good as they possibly could be because I finally felt like I was doing something that I cared about. And that sort of propelled me into the industry, I think. And when you were interning at Vice, I mean, presumably, or was that paid or no. Yeah, it was. It was, okay, and great. Yeah, really. I was so lucky to get that internship because they stopped that program about six months to a year after I got it. But yeah, it was paid. In that sense, is that kind of how you were sort of funding your life and making ends meet? I'm just asking because I think the kind of big question when you're going from one job, which, you know, your lobbying job presumably allowed you to kind of live in London, to being on an intern salary. Like, I'm curious as to how you were making ends meet. Yeah, so I think I was being paid £250 a week or something like that when I was at Rice, which is not not a lot of money, but it was okay, it was fine, it was enough. And I had some savings from my old job as well. So, I mean, I don't know how I'd have survived really had I not been able to get that internship, but that was fine. And actually, since then, I've always been able to sort of make a living from writing without having to do... Actually, that's not true. I used to also do some private tutoring on the side when I was an intern at Vice. Ah, tutoring, yeah. that old yeah. chestnut. I've been, <laughs> I've been down that road. That was the first thing I did when I quit advertising. The first yeah. thing I did was like sign up for all of those like tutoring agencies that like farm out, you know, Oxbridge grads to like rich West London parents. And <laughs> I hated it. I really didn't last very long. I think I did like a few sessions and I just made my excuses. I don't know. I've, I'm, I'm not necessarily, I don't think I have the temperament for tutoring kids, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how did I mean, you find it's- it? 
It's like such a good part-time job to have around another job. So I'll do it at weekends. But whenever I go through central London now, I'll be walking down a street and I'll be like, how do I know this street? And I'll be like, oh, because I tutor as a rich kid in this house. Um, <laughs> it was okay. If the kid was like engaged and actually wanted to learn, then I enjoyed it because ultimately you're just, sometimes it's interesting. But some kids were just shits and basically expected <laughs> me to just write their coursework for them. And then I would explain to them that I'm not here to write your coursework. I'm here to help you. And they'd be like, well, why are my parents paying you? Oh, <laughs> less said about that the better so you were then at Vice for three years was it so I was an intern and then I left and I worked at Dazed and Confused for a little bit and then I came back to Vice and was probably there for about three years yeah could you tell me a bit about what you were doing at Vice and what sort of stories you were reporting and, and what that experience was like for you I broadly was predominantly a U.S outpost of Vice so like most of my team was based in America but in the UK I work with my amazing editor Zing who I know you're good friends with and my broadly was a women's platform it sadly no longer exists anymore which I think is a real shame and our remit was really really wide we tended to focus more on sort of like pop culture and politics and sexual violence and we we weren't so much like a sort of shopping focused site like some women's publications are so we never sort of did fashion and stuff like that and when I was a staff writer there my job was basically writing articles for the site so really about almost anything I'd honestly write a piece about sort of rape convictions one day and then the next day I'd write some insane piece about a viral animal video that I thought was funny on the internet the next day. <laughs> it was really fun. And then when I became an editor, my job was basically sort of still writing, but also commissioning and editing freelancers. And I loved working there. I had an incredible editor, Zane, who's like a really good friend of mine now. And I think I was so fortunate for that to be my first job in journalism because I learned so much, especially because I didn't have a journalism qualification or anything like that. So, I mean, I think the first time someone asked me to get a right reply, I just went away and Googled it because I had no idea what that was. So I was really fortunate to get that job and I learned so much from it. Especially as I think, you know, staff jobs within journalism and within media are rare and getting rarer. So, I mean, that would have been, what, 2015, 2016 that you got that job. Like, even at that stage, I think a lot of people were struggling to get staff jobs. Yeah, it feels like, you know, in the disaster films where there's a door that's closing slowly and yeah. then the, like, action hero and his sidekick run towards the door and then they, like, roll underneath the door and they get in just before it closed. That's how I felt about it. <laughs> Oh my god, that is such a like damning indictment of like the media industry and journalism generally. But it's actually sort of true. Like I, I do find myself thinking, I mean, I never worked on staff and I kind of transitioned to journalism through a different way. But I don't know, I feel like if you're graduating now, getting into journalism is just increasingly hard. I mean, I actually want to talk about this and in terms of the direction of the industry now and the state of journalism, because I know that you're now freelance and I really quickly want to understand when you became freelance, like what that transition was like and why you decided to do it. Because as we've just said, staff jobs are few and far between. So how and why did you end up leaving Vice? I left Vice, I guess for two, not two reasons, maybe. So the first reason was I was very fortunate to be offered a retainer from The Guardian, which meant that I would still be freelance, but I'd have a guaranteed amount of work for them for a year. And that, I know they don't offer them very often, and I felt like that was an opportunity that I would probably regret passing up. And I was incredibly grateful that they offered that to me. 
and thankful for it. And that would have given me guaranteed income for at least a year, like a certain amount of pieces that they would commission me to write. And that meant that I would be able to sort of smooth my transition over into doing freelance. So that was probably the main reason that I left. And the secondary reason that I left was I thought that I wanted to be an editor and I pushed really hard to get promoted. And actually, when I started doing the job of an editor, I realised that I didn't like it a whole amount. And editors, I think, they just get like very little recognition of what they do. So and writers, little recognition. Yeah, yeah. And writers get all the glory. Yeah. <laughs> and and you wanted the glory. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm an egomaniac. <laughs> no, I'm not an egomaniac. But I realised that I would go into work and spend my whole day polishing someone else's copy. Often it would be the idea that I had come up with and commissioned to them. And I'd be like, oh, I just kind of want to write this myself. Like, I'd rather just write this piece myself. And I think I kind of realised, as is so often the case when you start doing a job and, think, and then you realise it's not actually exactly what you want to do, you want to do something else, that I just much preferred being a writer to being an editor. And there would not have been really much space for me to progress in my career in vice as a writer like they have staff writers and they're amazing but it would have been a demotion for me to go back to just writing so I kind of felt like it was the next step in my career to just sort of go as full-time as a freelance writer so that's kind of why I did it. Mm. It's interesting actually because I think with so many jobs especially with journalism media like the natural sort of path of progression often for people is once you become you know an experienced writer like maybe an editorship is on the cards for you but I think it was really like interesting and, and admirable that you actually recognise that that isn't what you wanted. It's kind of positioned as a step up in your career and in some ways it is, but that's only if that's what you want to be doing. It's kind of, it can often feel like a sideways move for a lot of people. So I think it's really cool that you realise that. I'm curious as well as to what the kind of, I mean, in as much as you can say, because I also feel like the time period that you're describing, which is first of all becoming a staff writer, advice and then an editor and then going freelance and getting a retainer that was and still is a very chaotic time within media in terms of layoffs and redundancies and publications shutting down and you know that is still happening I think that kind of coincided with the infamous pivot to video that pretty much every kind of new media company pivoted and I was curious as to how you felt about going freelance within the context of that? I was really nervous about that. And that was sort of one of the things that I really agonised over for a long time. And I'm a freelance writer, like it's easy for any publication to cut ties with me. Like if they need to restructure or downsize, we are the first people to go. And I do accept and acknowledge that. I guess for me personally, I would rather be doing something that I really, really enjoy and really, really love, even if it's less secure. I also, to be honest with you, don't think that staff jobs are secure either anymore. I think there's really no security in this industry. And I used to really struggle with that. I used to struggle with that when I was at Vice because we went through a lot of layoffs when I was there. And I used to just think like, oh my God, like what if I get laid off tomorrow? Like what will I do? Lately, I've come to this sort of acceptance and decision that I'll touch wood hopefully always be able to support myself, even if I'm not in the industry that I want to be in. I've never since I left home and since I left university I've always been financially independent and I think when I decided to just stop worrying so much about the insecurity in the industry and just decide that okay like as long as I'm still earning and as long as I can still pay my bills and support myself then it'll be okay and I've always managed to do that so far so hopefully I'll manage to do it in the future because we just don't know what's going to happen with journalism like it's a very insecure industry and I kind of take every year that I'm still in it as something to be thankful for. And I just try not to take it for granted. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's interesting, something that I really started to reckon with, I think for the first time in my freelance career, it was, you know, at the start of the pandemic back in March of last year, when I, I don't know why, but it was the first time I really realised just exactly how precarious my livelihood is, partly because I lost a whole bunch of jobs the second everything shut down. But then after a while, I actually felt strangely, I don't want to use the word empowered because it's become so meaningless, but I did suddenly think, you know what, in a way I prefer being freelance in this context, because even though I did notice, you know, I have like a marked drop in income and things going away, I think for me, the feeling of being made redundant from one job and potentially losing my only source of income overnight, for me, and the way I feel about money, I think that would have been more destabilising than what I experienced, which was like losing some things, kind of able to pick up other things and feeling like I kind of had my eggs in lots of different baskets as opposed to just having one employer who could potentially just kind of cut the cord at any moment. Yeah, completely. And I think when my friends have told me that they're thinking about leaving their staff jobs to go freelance, that's pretty much the advice that I always give them as well, which is just try and build relationships with as many people as possible because, yeah, you don't want to have your eggs all in one basket. And I guess you definitely do feel like you have more autonomy, I think, when you're freelance because like you are working with different people it's not like there's someone in a HR department that can just come in and lay you off one day which is something that I used to worry about loads in my old job I mean I used to sort of avoid the HR person in my office (laughs) yeah like Sharon that's not that's not gonna it's like we want to make Sharon redundant but we literally can't find her it's like I don't do this yeah they can't find me yeah exactly so they just have to keep paying you A quick message from our episode sponsor, Oh My Gum. I already mentioned that their chewing gum is plastic-free, comes in two delicious flavours, mint and cinnamon, and has this super chic packaging that means you'll probably be showing it off constantly. But did you also know that throughout the month of April, 5% of Oh My Gum sales will be going towards the charity Ocean Generation, who do a lot of amazing work preventing plastic pollution in our oceans, which is, of course, a vitally important cause. How many more reasons do you need to try it out? Head to www.ohmygum.com now to make the switch to the environmentally friendly chewing gum option and follow Oh My Gum on Instagram at o.my.gum. And now, back to my interview. I want to move on a little bit to talk about some of the kind of notable pieces that I think you've worked on in the past. Sorry, that sounds like a performance review. (laughs) (laughs) some of my favorite pieces that you've written in the past like year or two I mean you've written loads of pieces I like but I think most recently there was one in particular that I enjoyed which was an article you wrote for Tortoise about the fall of the girl boss which is a topic that I am obsessed with like I find girl boss culture and you know it's genesis and everything about it so fascinating I've written about it at length you know in my book that's coming out later on this year and but I'm not the only one. I think the number of pieces I've read about the wing, which was kind of centre stage of your piece, is astronomical. You know, there was one that came out just the other day by The Cut. People love this topic. And I'm really, really curious as to why you think girlboss feminism and the wing captured and continues to capture so much attention. Because now we're talking about it in a kind of post-mortem way, but we're still talking about it. Why do you think that is? Yeah, God, it's weird, isn't it? Realising that you've lived through a trend or like a period of history. Like I remember the beginning 
of girl boss feminism and now we're coming out the other side yeah i think we're talking about it because it's an interesting story with intrigue and it's juicy and there are plenty of receipts for want of a better word like you know like we had all these glowing profiles of the wing back in 2017 and people enjoy it i think people do unfortunately enjoy stories where something that was once beautiful and shiny has gone to shit and you can sort of analyze it and pick over it and see what happened there but i think what's really interesting for me with the girl boss feminism thing is just how deep my fatigue is with it and how deep everyone's fatigue is with it I think for me I think I touched on it in the piece I worked at a women's publication so I basically that was sort of like being I don't know like jet hosed with girl boss feminism for three years like like, you know what I mean it was like those car washes where like you're in the car and you're just being like assaulted at every angle where like a sponge I've really sort of worked out some deep sort of personal hatred of that in that piece. But I absolutely hated girl boss feminism from the outset. Like I really loathed it because I felt like it infantilized women and it taught down to women. And it shouldn't be remarkable for a woman to be a successful business leader. And I don't think that should be something that's necessarily viewed through a feminist lens. But I guess I really hope that that's just done now. Like I really hope that girl boss popular feminism is just done and we can all move on. But I don't know. Do you think it is? I don't think it is. I think I think it might be. I think there are kind of always new iterations of this sort of thing. So Sophia Amoruso was just a new version of Sheryl Sandberg. I think it has a way of reinventing itself. I've kind of seen one or two businesses and individuals who seem to be kind of assuming the mantle. I won't name any names, but I feel like it has it probably still has legs in it. But I do think what's interesting is that it's being discussed in a much more kind of mainstream way than it was before on the flaws of girlboss feminism because one of the things I do find myself thinking when like I'm having these conversations with you or you know friends who work in media is is it just media people who give a shit about this because most of my non-media friends definitely do not give a shit or barely even know what the wing is and they certainly don't care about this kind of I think what can manifest as quite like intense navel gazing around its politics like you know I had friends who were like oh should I join and like they just did not really give a shit about whether or not it made them like a good or a bad feminist and I suddenly felt like I was just kind of part of this like very small subset of like feminist media people who was potentially over analyzing it I don't know what do you think of that yeah I think you're probably right to be honest with you I think though that there's currents and they feed into like wider sort of tributaries. Like I think that this girl boss feminism thing will eventually start to cut through into like mainstream popular discourse. Like I think you mean criticisms of it will come. Yeah, yeah, criticisms of it. Whenever I interview teenagers now, they say to me, Oh, I don't really identify as a feminist anymore. Like it's sort of just inherent, this assumption that everyone's a feminist now. Like it's kind of lame to say you're a feminist because everyone's a feminist and there's nothing particularly new or progressive or shiny about that. So I think if like Gen Z is saying that, then they're probably also kind of annoyed and fed up with girl boss feminism too that said though like I still think it's percolated in mainstream culture people like will often be like oh I just read the Hillary Clinton biography isn't she great to me and I'm like I don't think I don't I don't think Hillary Clinton is a girl boss but possibly that's where the contemporary discourse is currently at the thing for me the thing that I find the most irritating about girl boss feminism is that I don't want this movement to become a trend and I don't want it to be a gimmick and I don't want it to be something that you sell to people because I really passionately believe that feminism is such an important thing and is a social and political movement that 
we need to hold on to firmly. I am a feminist and I want people to be feminist. I just don't want people to think that buying a slogan t-shirt from H&M that says Girl Boss on it that was made in a sweatshirt is feminism. Like, I think we can do a bit better than that. And I guess it's just capitalism that I'm fed up with, like the way that capitalism kind of ruins everything. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I mean, completely agree with you on that front. I mean, one thing that I do want to ask, though, because the article that you wrote for Tort is very specifically focused on the period of time last summer in the kind of June, July, in the aftermath of George Floyd being killed, when there was a kind of like girl boss reckoning, where a lot of these companies and female founders who'd been at the forefront of the movement, so like Audrey Gelman and The Wing, I think it was Leandra Medine Cohen and Man Repeller, there was, who were the other people there? It was like the Reformation CEO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody at Refinery29, yeah. like, you know, all these women who had been at the forefront of this movement either resigned or were forced to step back from their companies because it emerged that they had been overseeing really toxic and often racist workplace cultures. And I think it was very demonstrable that these women had behaved in, you know, less than admirable ways. But something that also really struck me was the intense glee around that whole scenario and how much it differed from the way male CEOs or male kind of public figures are treated when they, you know, step out of line or engage in similar behaviour. And I'm curious as to what you think about that, because I do think there is a double standard. I'm not saying that we need to go easier on women. I think it's more that we need to hold men to higher standards. But I would love to get your take on that potential double standard, because even in the way I perceived it unfold on social media, like the vim that people had for, let's say, like Audrey Gelman, I was like, did this woman kill someone? Like, you know, it kind of got to the point where I was like, okay, like she like built like a whatever shitty company, but like, yeah, yeah. I felt like we were, you know, dissecting like a sort of like serial killer or something. <laughs> yeah, Howard Shipman got a better, more valid deal than she did. I actually have thought about that and I'm kind of torn on it. So I think the reason that we really tore down those women, and by we I mean society really tore down those women, was partly because they were just raging hypocrites, right? So they presented themselves as socially progressive people but actually they weren't socially progressive. They were just sort of horrible capitalists who do what horrible capitalists always do, which is treat their people of colour employees like shit. And so I think part of the reason that there was kind of that gleeful reaction to it and a really sort of intense desire to oust those women was because there was this sort of huge gap between who they presented themselves as, which is like, you know, the progressive new women in the workplace, and then who they actually were, which were basically, you know, just white men in suits treating people like shit. But I guess we maybe need to think about why it is that they had to present themselves in those ways to start with. Like, do we only take these female founders seriously if they present themselves as these sort of shiny feminist Barbies? Which I think might be the case. I read a really interesting article a couple of months after all of this unfolded by a kind of business journalist. I think it was in Fortune. And they pointed out, and I think one of these female founders, so it was Ty Haney, who was the CEO of Outdoor Voices, you know, an athleisure company in the US. And she pointed out that, especially when she was fundraising, because, you know, all of these companies tend to be funded by VC money, by venture capital money. There is like a pressure on female founders to A, kind of put themselves at the heart of their brand and, and to really be the face of their brand in a way that men don't have to. And B, to also kind of create these like values-driven brands. So they can't just say outdoor voices makes 
the best running leggings for you to run in. Like they're better than Nikes because they're stretchier or they, you know, wick air. I don't run, so you can tell that I don't really know anything about running. But, you know, it's like they're better than Nikes for X, Y, Z reasons. They're not really allowed to market their products in those ways. It has to be outdoor voices are better because we are a feminist company or something like that, you know, to be really reductive. And so I wonder whether inherently these women are pushed into and adopt, willingly adopt these positions that set them up for a fall. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I think they have to be hyper visible and they have to centre themselves in that narrative, don't they? And then what are your values? What are your ethics? And also, and I think I touched on this in the piece as well, but when you take venture capital money to you know, expand your business, that comes with like pretty aggressive expectations in terms of profitability and revenue. And so do I think Audrey Delman treated her employees like shit? Yeah. Do I think that she was racist to them? Like probably. I don't know. I wasn't there, but it doesn't sound like she treated them well. But she probably was having a bunch of venture capital bros saying, right, like, what's your bottom line? What's your bottom line? And I guess I don't know what the answer to all of that is. And I think more broadly, the thing that I kind of struggle with is we can tear down these individual women and we can sort of send them to the, I don't know, the island of lost CEOs or wherever they go once you've been cancelled. Right. I don't know where all the cancelled people go in our society, but it doesn't Never change. Never to find out. <laughs> yeah. Like, put, like, set, like set up a reality TV show with all of God, that would actually be a really great concept <laughs> yeah. following people post cancellation I'm gonna put it yeah and then you like come out with a big brother house and you've been uncancelled like yeah like can you kind of try and sort of like rehabilitate your image in the public eye I think, I think it'd be great <laughs> yeah. like, Davina McCall is like waiting with a mic at the bottom of the stairs <laughs> I miss Davina McCall you know when she'd be like you are live on Channel 4, please do not swear. Like, that was such an <laughs> iconic line from like my childhood and teenage years. Like I miss the glory days of Big Brother. But how did we get yeah. onto this? <laughs> Basically, I think that we haven't really addressed like the systems that created that, which is that, you know, female founders need to put themselves forward in the public eye. We don't have vigorous welfare protections and employee protections in workplaces. Everyone's still incredibly racist and it manifests in how they treat their staff. Basically, there's so many other companies that we don't know about. They don't have the visibility of the wing that probably do the exact same thing. We can like symbolically remove all these bad apples, but it doesn't change the fact that the whole bushel is probably screwed. So I kind of feel like we need to just come up with something that's a bit better than these sort of individual cancellings. I also want to talk about your Lost to the Virus series that you wrote for The Guardian or have been writing for The Guardian, which has been, I think, kind of one of their flagship long form series all about the COVID-19 pandemic and the deaths and for anyone listening who hasn't read it, it tells the stories of some of the individuals who died in the UK from COVID and the sort of structural and systemic factors that contributed to their deaths. So it talks about care home deaths, bus drivers and the lack of PPE, the sort of the way in which black and ethnic minorities perhaps weren't best served by the medical guidance around coronavirus symptoms. And I think that series actually, Shirin, is probably one of the most important pieces of journalism that has emerged in response to the UK's handling of the COVID-19 crisis, like over the past year. I think, you know, it's kind of like on a par with that, you know, huge Sunday Times expose of Boris's, you know, mishandling of the response last summer or like the HuffPost reporting on the, you know, disproportionate number of ethnic minority deaths. I think it's like an incredible, incredible piece of journalism. But I only read it today <laughs> in order to interview you because I couldn't, I think maybe you know this, I just couldn't face it before. I just found it really, really too sad. And actually even just thinking about it now, 
makes me feel really emotional. And so actually my first question for you is what was it like to report that? Because I genuinely was barely able to read it. So I don't know what it was like to report it. Yeah, and thank you for your kind words on it. I'm really happy that people are reading it because I think those stories need to be told. People have asked me a lot, like, how are you doing? It must have been really hard speaking to all those families. Are you emotionally okay? And the honest answer is yes, I am. And the reason that I am able to do that and tell those stories and not be upset by it is because more than anything, I'm motivated by anger in reporting those stories. And I'm just incredibly righteously angry on behalf of all of those people who've died. And that's probably my prevailing emotion. And I direct that energy into those pieces. I'm so grateful to be able to tell those stories because I am so angry on behalf of all of the people who've died at the government's mishandling of the pandemic. And there's a lot that was out of their hands and there's a lot that was out of their control. And there would always have been a high death toll in this country because, you know, we've got like a densely packed urban population in London and we have a lot of people that travel here. But there were also some really egregious mistakes that were made. And when I talked to the family of somebody who died because Boris Johnson skipped five SAGE meetings in a row and didn't lock down the UK until it was too late, I find that devastating and I'll often cry and get really upset by it. But I don't carry that around with me because it's not helpful or beneficial for me in terms of my ability to do my job. The thing that I carry around with me mostly is anger, not sadness. And I feel a sense of obligation to those families to basically just do the best job I can in terms of reporting those stories and telling them because I sort of just deeply deeply want people to know what's really going on and what has really happened and basically for there to be a historical record of this so I don't get upset by it I just get angry. No I think that's fair enough the question that I have actually is I mean given the number of deaths in the UK it probably wasn't difficult to find these stories but I am curious as to how you chose which ones to cover and highlight because there is unfortunately an embarrassment of riches to pick from in terms of COVID death stories to tell so how did you decide which ones you felt were important to share with the public? So I identified what I thought were significant policy failings and I worked backwards from that so PPE shortfalls in the NHS, care home deaths, mass events or I identified communities of people that had been disproportionately affected by COVID, so people from black and minority ethnic communities or bus drivers, for example, who have died in just shocking numbers. And then I was quite careful as well to make it firstly gender balanced, but also more importantly, to make it reflective of the racial components of people who have died. So I wanted definitely at least half of the people in loss of the virus to be non-whites because people from BAME communities have died in a disproportionate number in the UK. And then it was mostly just about trying to find those people. I mean, it's kind of how you find anyone really, like a lot of asking around, a lot of reading actually local newspaper articles. It's often local journalists are the first to get to case studies. So one of my case studies I found through the Liverpool Echo, speaking to like unions, that was another big way, like, you know, like the bus drivers union, for example. And it was hard. It was really hard finding people just because also I wanted to talk to them a lot. And, you know, like I really have quite close relationships now with all of the families in Lost of the Virus because I spoke to them for weeks at a time. So it was also finding people who, that were willing to open up their lives to me in that way, which is a huge ask. Yeah, and I think you can really tell how deep you went with these stories. I think reading them, there were so many little details about their lives. And, you know, I think it was really beautiful. And I hate using that word, but I think in a way it was really kind of like dignified to give 
these ordinary people who weren't necessarily famous or public figures to kind of give them these obituaries. But as you say, yeah, I I also found it maddening <laughs> to read as well as very sad. I'm curious as to what the reception to the series has been like. Not, I mean, obviously from readers and Guardian readers and that sort of thing, but have you had any reception or response on a more institutional level, like from MPs or politicians? I actually haven't, no. I've had lots of responses God, from that like... That all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing. I've had lots of responses from grieving families and that's really important actually for them to reach out and say like, thank you. Like you might, you know, they often tell me about their relatives and like how they also died in a similar way. But yeah, I've had jack shit from the government. I'm sure I'm on some sort of like journalist blacklist somewhere <laughs> in Whitehall. I am curious just to kind of bring things to an end. I want to talk about the sort of stories that you gravitate towards as a journalist, because you do have actually a very varied kind of oeuvre. Can I say that? Oeuvre? Body of work. Um, (laughs) I'll stick with that. Because, you know, on the one hand, you've written these really, really hard hitting stories, like this Lost of the Virus series. And on the other hand, you also write just like some quite like fun pieces. Like I saw that you wrote something about, is it Homes Under the Hammer? Yeah, Homes Under the Hammer, although the true heads just call it Hammer. Oh, God. (laughs) I remember reading that in the article and I was like, thank God I don't watch this show. No, but you know, that was like a fun piece and I think you write really fun pieces. But I'm curious as to whether there's a kind of through line between the sort of stories that you gravitate towards as a journalist or if you were just kind of open to trying whatever. I don't know if there's a through line. I think my through line is try and be empathetic and compassionate towards people, try and find the humour in things if there is humour to be found in them, but also be angry when you need to be. But I really don't have a beat or a particular thing that I like to write about. I really enjoy writing humorous pieces because they're actually really hard to put together. It's the hardest kind of writing you can do is actually being funny. And that is the fun thing to exercise and it's a good muscle to work. I used to struggle a lot with that earlier in my career. I think I would always think, oh, I should really have a beat and be one of those amazing journalists that like really reports out their beat like really rigorously, like Nadine, for example, at Huffington Post. But actually, I really like just writing about all sorts of stuff. And I'm just curious and interested in the world. (laughs) So I really love my job. So I can just write about almost anything. And it's always different and fun. I don't centre myself in my writing too much because I'm not like a comment writer or anything like that I don't think that I'm particularly interesting but yeah I don't really have a through line my final question is what is your aim as a journalist like what role I think do you see yourself as having within society this is a big question what role do you see journalists as playing within society and I wonder whether you touched on that when we were talking about the loss of the virus series but I kind of want to get that from you again so This is like a really weird answer to your question, but I'm half Turkish and there's this like concept in Turkish culture, which is the evil eye. And basically it's sort of you don't jinx the future by projecting or expecting too much of whatever's going to happen to you in your life. You sort of just take it as it comes. And so I very much don't set myself goals or like plan into the future or think like, oh, I want to do this or I want to achieve this because it was kind of drilled into me from a really young age that if you do that, you provoke the evil eye and then your goals won't come true because just because of this sort of deep superstitious karma in the universe that I've kind of convinced myself exists. So I honestly don't have a plan and I don't know what I want to do with my life. and I don't know what I want to do with my career. I'm just taking it as it comes. But in terms of the role of journalism, 
I worry a lot about this and I feel deeply empathetic to young journalists trying to get into the industry now because it just does seem so awful and unfair and nepotistic. But I think that there's such an important role for journalism. I mean, we're living in this sort of insane Trumpian ecosystem right now in the UK where the government simultaneously declares like a war on woke, which is complete meaningless nonsense. But then also, you know, like basically attempts to bully and harass a journalist doing her job. You know, like the, the cabinet office has set up a clearinghouse for FOIs, basically in order to try and block people from getting public information so they can actually report on what the government is doing. And I've experienced that firsthand. Like it's really hard to get clear information out of the government right now. They're determined not to let stuff get out. And so I think that the role of journalism is just so vital and it's basically just making sense of the madness and the hypocrisy and just the disinformation on social media. Like I don't think we've ever really needed journalism more, but unfortunately I think the industry is just really undervalued, underpaid and I sincerely hope that things change and that things can be turned around because I very much don't want to have to retrain in a few years time and do something else. I really think we need to fix this and figure out how we can make this industry profitable because I honestly don't even want to know what the government would be doing if none of us were holding it to account. Mm. Couldn't agree with you more on all of that. Sharon, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another fantastic guest. So do make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then I think you'll really enjoy my next book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about, you guessed it, money, and which you can pre-order now using the link in my show notes. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegiwagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost.